following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday mornings at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. There is a particular food that I think is the college student's best friend. Now, it is a food for all ages, don't get me wrong, but especially... I remember loving it in college. It is ramen noodles. Let's hear it for ramen noodles. I mean, there's some clapping happening. Let's just let it go. And we have some, I can feel that we have some ramen noodles uh, connoisseurs out there, okay? And I remember one semester, my roommate and I discovered this one particular flavor of ramen noodles that we just kind of like went nuts about. Like we just bought like all of these cases. And it was this one right here. It is the cheddar cheese flavor ramen noodles. Does that sound delightful? I mean, hearing that. I emphasize the word flavor because it takes a while when you read through the ingredients to come across anything that sounds remotely like cheese, okay? So it's cheddar cheese flavor. Now the beauty of this right here is this cost me 28 cents at Walmart. And it says that it's a, it, it is an instant lunch, but we all know that ramen noodles is the perfect snack. It's not really a meal. It's a snack that gets you from one meal to the next. And so we got excited about these cheddar cheese flavor. I mean, we were knocking these down like once or twice a day. And um, you could, with this, it's great because it's got like this little styrofoam cup. You just pour the boiling hot water in there and cover it up. And about five minutes later, it's like napalm. Like that bundle of noodles will melt your face off, okay? It's so hot. And so we would eat these, and they were great, and our buddies would eat, would eat these too. And then one of us made a humongous mistake. We read the nutrition facts on the back. Now, I'm actually embarrassed to read you what it says, so let me just illustrate for you what it is like to consume one of these, okay? Food value-wise, there is literally more vitamins in a hot dog than in this cup of noodles, okay? The fat content, I'm not gonna tell you what the fat content is, I'm just gonna tell you it has the same fat content. This uh, lunch substitute has the same fat content as a king-size Snickers bar. But the worst of it is the sodium. The sodium, you would have to eat three large McDonald's french fries to consume the same amount of sodium as in this cup of salt, cup of noodles, okay? <laughs> you would have to eat three large french fries. By the way, french fries also have more vitamins in it <laughs> than this right here. So we, we did not, we decided to stop eating that. We moved on to something more healthy, Pop-Tarts. <laughs> it's fruit in the center, covers part of the food pyramid. Decided to eat Pop-Tarts, moved on from there. So the problem was we had this, it, we consumed a lot of this cheddar cheese flavor cup of noodles until we realized what it was doing to us and we immediately discontinued that. So here's what we're doing. We're in a series on forgiveness. It's called Set Free. And we're talking about the power of forgiving another person, someone that has wounded us and we forgive. And if we had taken a poll, probably anywhere, 
most people know that forgiveness, it's, it's a positive, like it's a good thing. We like hearing those stories in a magazine about, man, two people, and they really forgave their enemy, and, and they were reconciled, and what a beautiful thing. Or we like to see that depicted in a movie. We know that forgiveness is like a heartwarming, good thing. But then when it comes to actually us forgiving someone in our life, not just that person that you know kind of irritates you every now and then at work, not that person who cut you off in the car, but that person who dealt a serious wound, a serious blow to you in your life. When you talk about forgiving that person, forgiveness being just kind of like a nice thing to do, it doesn't carry enough weight. Forgiveness is hard. It's brutal. In fact, it actually, sometimes, it just feels wrong. Why would I possibly forgive that person. It would be, it almost feels unjust. Like, why would I, I forgive that person? But here's the question that this passage we're looking at stops and forces us to ask. Have I ever stopped and wondered, what's the damage unforgiveness is doing to my system? Have I ever stopped to ask, okay, forgiveness is hard, but which is harder, forgiving or living with ongoing unforgiveness? Which does more damage? We're looking at a passage in the Bible uh, on the, it's called Philemon, and it's a letter in late in the New Testament, and if you have a Bible or a Bible app, go ahead and turn there to the book of Philemon. Let me tell you a little bit about this book. It's technically a letter. It's from a guy named Paul. Maybe you've heard of uh, the Apostle Paul or Saint Paul, he's sometimes called this guy, Paul, wrote a letter to a guy named Philemon. Philemon was a good friend of his. In fact, Paul actually led, told Philemon about Jesus. Philemon became a Christ follower, became a Christian. Uh, Paul led him to Christ in that sense. And so they know each other well. Here's how this, but there's an interesting story behind this book of Philemon. When Paul is writing this letter, he's in prison in Rome, obviously modern-day Italy, and Philemon is in the city, probably the city of Colossae, which is in modern-day Turkey. Now imagine in ancient times how long it would take a letter to get from Italy to Turkey. But it's important enough that he writes this letter. Now what's going on that this letter is so important? While Paul has been in Rome... He gets, he runs across, he meets this guy named Onesimus. They get to knowing each other and they realize that they have this mutual friend, Philemon. Paul obviously knows him, he led him to Christ, but he finds out that Onesimus used to be a bondservant in the house of Philemon. So Paul's got to be wondering, okay, if you serve in the house of Philemon, what are you doing all the way here in Rome? And he comes to learn, as we can kind of piece together, Philemon has turned his back, or Onesimus has turned his back on Philemon. He's run away. He's stolen money from Philemon, probably at least to fund his journey, maybe to fund his new life. And he's fled from him. He's in Rome. And Paul gets to know this guy, Onesimus. And in this relationship between Paul and Onesimus, he starts to tell Onesimus about Jesus. That's what Paul does all the time. He can't help it. He starts telling him about Jesus, how God loves him, and Onesimus becomes a follower of Christ too. He becomes a Christian. And one day, Paul has to have a tough conversation with Onesimus. As we can kind of read between the lines, what happens is Paul has to tell him, look, you're now a follower of Christ. You're a true Christian. 
And Philemon, the guy you used to work for, he's a follower of Christ. He's a true Christian. So spiritually speaking, your brothers, it's time for you to make things right with Philemon. And he sends Onesimus back from Rome all the way to Colossae. And he says, but I'm going to send a letter with you to kind of mediate this reconciliation. Now, if you've ever been in a moment where you have to correct someone or challenge someone, I don't know if you've ever heard of the method where you give them a positive, then you give them something constructive, and then you end with a positive. You know what I'm talking about? You kind of sandwich the criticism in the middle or the challenge in the middle. Paul does that exact thing in this letter. It's very effective. So I want to start, with, I want to start by showing you here's the positive that Paul says to Philemon. Look at this. This is Philemon verse 4. Let me read this to you. This is his letter. He says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Here's the positive. He says, Philemon, man, you are just one of those people. You're just such a loving person. In fact, all the way in Rome, I'm hearing stories about how, what a loving person you are. You're just, and he says, that brings me so much joy and comfort. You have been a joy and a comfort to me. You are just such a loving person, and I really appreciate that about you, and I thank God for you, okay? That's where he starts, but I want you to see his transition into his challenge. Look what he says, verse 8. He says, accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. See what Paul just did? That was a move. He says, Philemon, man, you are such a loving person. I love that about you. I've been impacted by your love. So, because you're such a loving person, I know that this is something, I could command you to do it because it's required, but I know that this is going to be an outflow of that love that you have for other people. You see what he did? Philemon's there like reading the first verse, like, yeah, I kind of am a loving person. It's nice that people start recognizing that I'm such a loving person. And then Paul sets the hook. So I want you to show love in this way. Now, Paul has an agenda here, and I want you to see what Paul says. Look at this. Let's, let's keep going, because Paul, I'm just going to be honest with you, he lays it on pretty thick here. Look at verse, let's start in verse 10. I appeal to you for my child. Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this is perhaps why he was parted from you for a while, that he, you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, 
Receive him as you would receive me. And if he has wronged you at all or owes anything to you, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I say. Now you're Philemon, Onesimus is the one who handed you that letter. You're looking, you're like, okay, I pretty much have no options here of what you just wrote. I mean, he, I mean, Paul has an agenda. He's in Rome. He can't like call up Philemon and like, you know, or text him, hey, did you get that letter? If you, if you want more explanation, call me back. He's got one shot. It's via this letter. He knows what needs to be done, and he's sending it. And if it feels like Paul's being manipulative, I would argue he's not being manipulative. It's that he so knows what is the right thing to do, and he so knows that this would be better for the cause of the gospel, that he's taking no chances. He's hitting him straight on, making sure he gets the point. To, to the degree, did you notice how he ends? He says, and if Philemon stole any money from you, I'll pay it personally. Remember, he's already reminded Philemon twice that he is in prison for the gospel, but he'll pay it himself. If money's that important to you, Philemon, I'll pay it even though I'm in prison. And I'm not going to bring up the fact that since I led you to Christ, you kind of owe me your soul, but I'm not going to bring that up. <laughs> but if you have any, any money, if money's the issue, I'll repay it. Okay, I want you to see like what's what is he, let's read between the lines, what does Paul want from Philemon? What's he expecting from Philemon? There's a, a surface level thing, but then there's an, a, an under the surface level thing that's even more important. The surface level thing is, did you notice when he said, I mean, he was dropping some serious hints. Did you notice when he said, man, it was great when Onesimus was working alongside of me for the sake of the gospel? Because, you know, I'm in prison, and it's hard for me to get the gospel out there, this message of God's love through Jesus. It's hard for me to, to do a lot of pr productive work because I'm in prison. But, man, it was so great having Onesimus working right here next to me, and I would have kept him. It would have been so nice if only Onesimus could be right here working next to me. But I wouldn't do that without your consent, Philemon. He's insinuating, man, it would be great... If you could free Onesimus of his debt, of his arrangement with you, his responsibility to you, it'd be great if you could send him back to me so that he could, so that he could work on your behalf, Philemon. If that could be your investment in the gospel, that you make the sacrifice and turn him around and send him back to me to help further the gospel. Because I know you're, you look at me as a partner, Philemon. See, reading between the lines, surface level, he wants Onesimus back to work alongside of him. But there's something else that's even deeper going on. Did you notice he also said, I wonder if the reason that God had you separated is over that time he's doing a work so that when, I, when he's sent back, when Onesimus is back in front of you, now you can have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant but as a brother. Did you, did you hear that line? You can have him back as a brother forever? So how does that square with it? He's saying, 
I'm, I, he's insinuating, I want you to send him back to me, but I'm wanting you to have him back forever. Here's what he's saying. On one hand, on service level, I want you to, I'd love for you to send him back. He'd be very productive. It'd be like your investment in the gospel. Even though that's a great sacrifice on your part, it'd be a huge investment in the gospel. But he's wanting something underneath the surface. He's saying, I want, but I want you to have him back as a brother. I want you to reconcile. I want you to have everything. I, I want forever the hatchet to be buried, you guys to make things right. He's no longer in your debt. You don't see him as this bond servant who fled and turned his back on you and left you high and dry. You now see him as a brother. I want you to forever have this reconciliation. I love the way he's defining forgiveness here. Forgiveness, sometimes we, we can just toss out forgiveness. Like, yeah, I forgive them. But how he's defining forgiveness, he's, just, he's defining it essentially as setting him free no longer as a bondservant, as a brother. They're no longer in bondage. They're now set free and you've received forever and you, they're received as a brother. This idea of forgiveness is this idea of letting someone go out of prison, letting them go out of the cage that I'm keeping them in in my heart, letting them go free forever. We don't always mean that when we say forgive. Um, I think one of the best places to see this is among small children. Have you ever had uh, asked small children to kind of reconcile and say they're sorry to each other? It's about the most disingenuous moment you could possibly create. So my daughter's four, my son is two, and it's not uncommon that maybe I'll be in the kitchen and in the living room I'll hear World War III just take place, okay? And uh, what has probably happened is my daughter has been playing with uh, a toy and all of a sudden my son has gone over and just gone, yoink, takes the toy and then he flees takes it and as fast as his chubby feet can pad on the floor, he's running away, this two-year-old with this toy. And my daughter, I mean, this is like the worst possible scenario. I mean, it's like a, it, she's screaming and crying and running after him. And I'm like, I have to like catch them as they run by. And I pull them and say, okay, all right. I take the toy and say, okay, Scarlett, were you playing with this? Yes, I was playing with it. Okay, all right. I say, okay, son, we do not take toys from your sister, can you say, I'm sorry? And by now, he's already looking at something else. He's like looking behind. He's like, sorry. <laughs> Profound. And I say, okay, Scarlett, can you say, I forgive you? She says, I forgive you. You know, like that. Through all these tears. Okay, that was not the most authentic relational moment in our house, but it happened, okay? And sometimes what we can see in kids, we do basically the same thing. We just dress it up a little better oh yeah, I, forgive, I forgave them. But we can so quickly just recall to mind all the things. We still have the list. It's like basically what happens with, with um, unforgiveness is we, we keep them in a prison in our hearts. In the recesses of our minds, we have a little dungeon and there's certain people that have deeply wounded us and they're in that, they're in that dungeon they're, they'll stay in that dungeon because we have this list of things that we hold against them. And every now and then we go down the dungeon and remind them of that list. It's maybe when we think about what they did or we see them at work or we, we see them in the neighborhood or we had that family gathering and we see them and we see that person and we're reminded just all of a sudden that our, our gut kind of turns and our heart drops and we're reminded of all the things that's done because it's like how we see them, it's like the, that bitterness that is the lens through which we see them, it's like we're looking at them through bars. 
It's like that bitterness is bars, and we're, it's like we went down to the dungeon, and we're looking at them, and we might say we forgive them, but we're looking at them through all of their offenses. It's like we're looking through the bars of the prison that we put them in. And true forgiveness, what Paul is describing, is unlocking the cage, opening it up, and say, you're free to go. I will never again hold those sins against you. I will never hold those wrongs against you. I will not rehearse them when I see you. I, will, I let them go. I'm letting them free forever. Now, there's something in here that, it's the most interesting verse, I think, in all of Philemon. And, and probably, as Philemon read this letter, this was probably the one sentence that stuck in his mind and he had to rehearse over and over and over and over. It's verse 11. Let me show you this verse. Paul says, Formerly, he, he's talking about Onesimus, Formerly Onesimus was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. Here's what's so interesting about that. You know the name Onesimus was a common name? The name Onesimus means useful. This is a play on words. This is a pun. He essentially, in the middle of his letter, he essentially says to Philemon, formerly useful was useless to you, wasn't he? But now useful is useful to you and to me. Why does, you know, is he trying to be funny? Of course, this is not a funny letter for Philemon to read. What, what's his point? He wants that to stick in his brain because he's saying, I'm sending Onesimus back and it's for your benefit. Now think about this with me. Paul ultimately wants Onesimus to go back and work with him. So why didn't Paul write this letter from Rome? Philemon, I'm sending you this letter. I've got Onesimus here. I met him while I was in prison. I know you have no use for him, but he's very useful for me. Can I have your permission to keep him? If not, I'll send him back to you. Why didn't he write that letter? Because he knows Onesimus going back to meet Philemon is useful to Philemon. Philemon needs to see Onesimus again. When he says he's useful, he was useless, but now he's useful, it's not that he's going to be a useful part of his household. Paul wants him to send him away from his household. It's not like he's useful again. He can be a useful bondservant. He's saying it is useful for you to transition him in your mind, in your heart, from bondservant to brother. That's what's useful for you. You know, sometimes we think about forgiveness, and we think about forgiveness in this, from the standpoint of, yeah, um, we know it's a good thing to forgive, but have we ever stopped and asked, okay, if I forgive them, which is terribly difficult for me, torturous for me to just let them out of the prison, just let them free, let them off for what they did, um, it, that's painful for me. Have we ever stopped and said, okay, but what's in it for me if I forgive them? What do I get out of it? Why is forgiveness useful to me? Have we ever stopped and, and taken unforgiveness, which we're comfortable with? Have you ever taken unforgiveness and kind of looked on the back and looked at the nutrition facts? So John Hopkins uh, has done a lot of research, and it's, it's common research, many different medical and uh, psychological and psychiatric uh, um, organizations have done a lot of research into the effects of bitterness on the physical body. 
And, and here's what they said in one Johns Hopkins article. It says that bitterness and anger, unforgiveness, leads to higher blood pressure and heart rate. It increases the risk of depression, heart disease, diabetes. It can even have an effect on your immune system. Now, why? What does bitterness do that, that creates that? What, it, what they say is happening is when I'm angry and bitter and I'm holding on to that, it's producing that same hormone, those same proteins, those same chemicals inside of me. That's the fight or flight hormone mechanism, which is good if it's driving me to fight to defend myself. The problem is with bitterness and unforgiveness, it's sending that hormone coursing through my body regularly, ongoing, and long-term. So when I'm laying in bed at night, I have those same fight-or-flight hormones going through my body um, night after night, keeping me laying awake. That's when I'm driving in the car, and that person comes into my mind, and all of a sudden, I'm having this imaginary conversation of what I would say to them if I ever got the chance. And I'm that's coming back up, and I'm those same fight-or-flight hormones that were never meant to be coursing through your body long-term are coursing through us, waves over us, and that does tremendous damage to our bodies. So the, in the article, they put it like this. Studies have found that the act of forgiveness can reap huge rewards for your health, lowering the risk of heart attack, improving cholesterol levels and sleep, and reducing pain, blood pressure, and levels of anxiety, depression, and stress. Why do we bring all this up? This passage is saying, bringing that person before you and reconciling with, with them, that's useful to you. That's to your benefit. So let's back up a second. Last week we talked about this. We talked about how Jesus, following Jesus, if I'm going to be a follower of Christ, he requires that we forgive. It's a command. It's an issue of obedience. And as hard and as difficult as it is, what we learned this week from reading this passage, it's not just a command to walk through torture. He's saying it's to your benefit. As with every other difficult command of Jesus, he's saying, I'm just doing this so that you can have life. We, we talked about, we talked about in, in last week, and it's the same this week, forgiveness is letting this prisoner go. But when we learn the effects of what it's having on, our, on ourselves, on ourselves emotionally, physically, and relationally, have we ever stopped to ask, who's really being hurt the most by my unforgiveness? A guy by the name of Lewis Smedes wrote a book on forgiveness, and he has this incredible concept, and I just want to summarize it for you like this. He says, forgiveness is setting the prisoner free, only to realize the prisoner was me. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free, only to realize the prisoner was was me. Let me ask you a question. Every time you lay awake at night thinking in anger and bitterness, thinking about that person, is that causing them also to lay awake at night? Every time I, I'm waking up in the morning and those thoughts come flooding back and I'm angry all the way to work and it's robbing my joy all day, has, it, has that the robbing of my joy keeping them in that jail cell, is that simultaneously then or somehow robbing their joy wherever they are in the world? 
As I see it, it's caging me back, hurting my future relationships because they cheated on me or, or they turned their back on me and so I'm not going to trust again and, and, I, I'm, uh, and it's affecting my relationships. Is my unforgiveness, is me saying, no, I'm going to keep them in my cage. Is that hurting their relationships? So who's really in the cage? Maybe the bars, when I, my bitterness and the bars that I'm looking through, that bitterness, when I'm looking, say, you are in prison. Maybe the bars is not their prison cell. Maybe I'm looking through the bars of my own prison cell. See, Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm telling you to forgive, but I'm revealing the secret to you. It's, it's for your sake. There was a, uh, about a month ago, in Kansas, the Kansas uh, Bureau of Corrections released a guy by the name of Richard Jones out of prison early. What had happened was about 17 years ago, it was in 1999, a woman was walking out of Walmart and someone approached her, tried to steal her purse. She fell down clutching her purse. Her cell phone slid out. The person grabbed the cell phone, jumped in the car, and sped away. And since she was injured in the process and they stole the phone, it was aggravated uh, assault and robbery. And so they were, they were hunting down this person. They got a tip about who the person was. They brought him in for questioning. They, they took a picture of this person, and they showed, they didn't have any other concrete evidence, but they had a picture of him, and they showed the picture to the victim in a lineup, and she said, there's no question, that is the person. Then they showed this person, this, this guy, Richard Jones, they showed him, uh, showed the, his same picture in a lineup to the security guard. And he says, absolutely, that is the guy. And that was enough, those two eyewitness accounts was enough to convict Richard Jones. He was put in prison and to the last day he was saying, no, I'm innocent, I'm innocent, I didn't do this. But the fact that he had a prior criminal record didn't help him in this process. And so as, as much as he tried to appeal, it kept getting turned over and turned over and turned over. And there was this, uh, this group called the Innocence Project out of, a, out of a university in Kansas and they picked up his case recently. And as they were investigating it, they came across the mugshot of someone who had just been arrested. And when they saw that picture, they were blown away because this guy could be his doppelganger. I mean, this guy is like an absolute lookalike. And his name, the guy who looks like Richard Jones, his name is actually Richard Amos. Let me show you their pictures side by side. Check this out. They said when they took the picture of Richard Amos and took it to Richard Jones in prison and said, look at this, he said at that moment, he said, that guy looks so much like me, I know exactly what happened. And they took it before, the, they took it before a judge, they had the, the woman who was the eyewitness and the security guard look at the two pictures, they couldn't tell them apart and it was enough, they said that proves his innocence or enough reasonable doubt and they let Richard Jones free after 17 years of being wrongfully imprisoned. You imagine, I mean, wrongful imprisonment, that's one of the saddest things that happens. You know, we've been talking about forgiveness. We've been talking about forgiveness blockers. And last week we talked about the first two. The first forgiveness blocker, it's the thing that keeps me from forgiving someone. And the first one is self-righteousness. It's this idea that I, when I look at someone, I'm so mad, and I would say, I would never do something like that. The reality of what I learned from, from the, what the Bible says and what, about what Jesus did for me and where I stand before God is I am a sinner too and I, I have no place to be self-righteous. 
I have no place to say that's an unforgivable sin when I've had so many of my unforgivable, unforgivable sins forgiven by God. And when I step out of that self-righteousness, I realize I, I need grace too, so I can have grace. The second blocker we talked about is rogue justice. One of the hardest things that keeps us from forgiving is the sense of, yeah, but they've gotten away with what they did. If, if I just set them free, they'll never be held accountable. I've got to hold them in my, my cage of bitterness and anger. And God is trying to say to us, justice is in my hands. You don't have to go do rogue justice. It's in my hands. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I'll take care of that person. You just deal with yourself. But this morning, we, we've got the third forgiveness blocker, and it's this. It's wrongful imprisonment. Do you know who's serving the sentence for that person's crimes? You are. You're in, imprisoned in the bitterness and unforgiveness. They're not affected. You're in prison, and every time you say, no, I'm going to hold on to this, every time I do that, I'm still letting them affect me, letting them have power over me, letting them continue to wound me. Every relationship it affects, every, every, every time it steals my joy, every time it physically sends stress coursing through my body and keeps me up at night and, and, and affects me in all these ways, every time I am serving the sentence, I'm the innocent party serving the sentence for their crimes. Forgiveness is setting the prisoner free only to realize the prisoner's me. You know, there's a, um, a great story that, that grabs this because forgiveness is, it, it's so hard. There's times that, that we say, man, for me to forgive and to let go of this, I would feel like a piece of me would die inside if I had to forgive and, and absolve them of what they've done to me. I, I'd feel like something died inside of me. But see, here's the trajectory of Jesus. Here's of his life. Here's the logic of Jesus' life. We think about every human in terms of their life and then their death, but the logic is flipped around with Jesus. He died and rose again. It's about his death and then his life. It was through his death that in his humiliation that he was glorified and purchased eternal life for everyone. And he says, follow after me. And he says, if you surrender this life, you'll find life. And the same logic is true when it comes to forgiveness. He says, I know that this is hard and this is torturous. I know there'll be a piece of you that feels like if I let this go, a piece of me will die inside. He's saying, I'm asking you to do that only because on the other side of that death is life, vibrant life. He says, everything that I'm calling you to do, as hard as it is, it's just to bring you life. There's a story from the Revolutionary War, and it's kind of passed down almost as, as legend at this point. And there was a, a man named uh, Whitfield, and he was a colonist, but he betrayed the other colonists, and he gave the British really important information, secret information that revealed the revolutionaries' locations and uh, endangered many of the Revolutionary Army. And he was captured, and they, in General Washington, had sentenced, had charged him with treason and sentenced him as would be the just punishment for treason. He sent, he sentenced him to death by being hanged. And so he was, uh, the night before he was supposed to be hanged, uh, a reverend named Peter Miller walked into General Washington's camp and asked to meet with uh, General Washington. And Washington had heard of Peter Miller before, and he said, okay, yeah, send him in. I'd like, to, I'd like to talk with him. And Peter Miller says, hey, I know you have someone 
that is sentenced to die tomorrow uh, named Whitfield, I'm here to ask that you pardon him. And Washington said, look, you apparently don't understand. He has betrayed his countrymen. He has committed treason. He's endangered thousands of lives. He, ha he has to die for his crimes. He has to be hanged. He says, there's no way. I'm sorry. There's no way I can pardon your friend. And Peter Miller says, my friend. He says, he's my most bitter enemy. He says, I've known him for years and, and he has persecuted me. This, this pastor, Peter Miller, says he's persecuted me for what I believe and what I teach. He ridicules me in public. He spits in my face. There's even been times he's physically attacked me in public. He is my most bitter enemy. That's why I'm asking that you pardon. And according to the story, Washington was so moved by this display of grace and mercy that he excused himself from the room, came back with a signed pardon and handed it to Peter Miller and says, you take it to him. Peter Miller left that night because he was, Widman was scheduled to be hanged the next day. He shows up and Peter Miller, or, um, Whitfield's standing on the gallows. They're about to put the noose around his neck and he sees Whitfield, or Peter Miller walk up and he says, is thinking to himself, oh sure, you're here to see your enemy die, be executed and find some kind of joy in that. But he didn't see the paper that was in Peter Miller's hands. Miller hands the pardon. As, as the story goes, the two walked out of the town together one having pardoned his enemy. Now you hear that story and you say, look, I, I got it. I need to pardon my enemy. I hear you. I know that's the right thing to do. But just take a time out for a second. I, I, I want to take that a step further. Do you know that's your story? And do you know who you are in that story? Because according to the message, this message of the gospel, the good news of God's love, here's how the story actually goes. Every single one of us owes almighty God, our creator, a unrestrained surrender and allegiance to God. Like we owe him our constant obedience and worship to him. And the first time that we disobey God, we have a self-centered thought or, or we break his commands in some way, it's like we're spitting in the face of our creator. In other words, because of the sin that's in every one of our lives, we are God's enemy. And what we deserve is death for eternity. But someone walks into pardonness. God himself in the person of Jesus, Jesus Christ, walks in. Someone, we, his enemy, he walks up with a pardon. But the story's a little bit different. It's not just that he hands the pardon and we both walk free. Jesus takes the noose from around your neck and he puts it around his and he's hanged in our place. That's the story of the gospel. That's the story of what Jesus has done for you. And he's now looking at you saying, and I'm asking you to follow in my footsteps and forgive. Why? I'm just promising that it will bring life to you. Can we just have a, an honest moment between us and God? Would you just bow your heads and, and close your eyes for a second and just take a moment just between you and God for a second? God has brought your Onesimus before you today. And he's saying, I've done this for your own benefit. Please forgive and set yourself free.
You say, look, you don't understand. It's complicated. I can't just go on being a doormat with this person and be walked on. And, and yes, I know it's complicated, and we're going to talk more next week about boundaries and things like that. But for t- today, it's simply saying, before God, in your heart, I let them free. I forgive them. I'm no longer going to hold these sins against them. I absolve them from their hurt, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step over the line, and I'm going to live in light of that. I'm, I'm, I'm going to capture my thoughts, and I'm going to let go of my bitterness. I'm choosing once and for all to forgive. Will you do that today? But you might be here saying, you know, I, I think the first thing I need to do to get things right is I need to get things right with God. And if it's true that I have sinned against God so bad, and if you're saying I stand facing a judgment of death, how can I, how can I be sure that I, I'm forgiven by God? He simply says, I'm offering you, God says, I'm offering you forgiveness, that you can live in forgiveness from your past sins, present, future. You can live in the state of forgiveness before God, reconciled forever because of what Jesus did when he died in your place. He's saying you can receive, you just have to receive his forgiveness today. Is that you? Do you want to make things right with God and receive his forgiveness? Then if that's you, then right now let's make it right with God. Can you just simply in your heart pray this to God? Make these words your words. Say this to God. Say, God, thank you for sending Jesus. Jesus, thank you for dying in my place. Thank you for offering me forgiveness. I receive it. I want to walk in a reconciled life with you. I know that it's through your son that I'm saved. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321 or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.